It's June 11th, 1986. The morning sun casts a warm glow on the suburban streets of Auburn, Washington. The stillness of the morning is disturbed by a truck as it rumbles past a white timber-framed house on North Street. Inside, 15-year-old Haley Snow is sitting at the dining room table. She checks the time to find that it's already after 6 a.m. If she doesn't get a move on, she's gonna be late. Groaning, she stands, stretches, and makes her way to the bathroom. On the other end of the wall, she can hear her mom moving around her own bathroom. Their morning routines match each other like clockwork. Haley steps into the shower and turns the faucet on. And then, a minute later, there's a loud thump from beyond the wall, like something or someone has fallen over. Haley's heart races, her mind immediately jumping to her mom. But her anxiety falls away just as quickly as it started. She reminds herself that her mom, Sue Snow, is a healthy 40-year-old woman. The thud she heard couldn't possibly be anything to worry about. Her mom probably just dropped the shampoo or something like that. It's 15 minutes later when Haley starts to panic. Through the door of her mom's bathroom, she can still hear running water. She checks the time and realizes that by now, her mom is usually finished getting ready. Haley knocks on the door, tentatively at first, but then with growing urgency. When there's no answer, aside from the continuous sound of running water, she barges in. A scream catches in her throat. Her mom is sprawled on the floor. She's on her back, her purple robe pulled tight around her waist. Her eyes, wide and unseeing, they stare up at the ceiling. Her skin is an unsettling shade of scarlet. Haley drops to her knees beside her and gropes at her mom's neck. To her relief, she finds a faint pulse. Now, Haley races to the kitchen and calls 911. Paramedics arrive soon after, spilling into the house with an array of equipment. Knowing they don't have time to waste, they lift Sue onto a stretcher and wheel her to the waiting ambulance. With flashing lights and wailing sirens, they carve a path through the early morning commuter traffic. The drive from Auburn to Harborview Medical Center in Seattle takes a little over 30 minutes. In that time, Sue's health deteriorates. She's showing the symptoms of brain injury. But as far as the paramedics can see, there doesn't seem to be any outward damage to the head area. As soon as they arrive in front of the sprawling medical complex, Sue is wheeled into ICU, where doctors begin battling to save her life. Haley's left in the waiting room with a family friend, struggling to contain her emotions. Sue's husband and Haley's stepfather, Paul, arrive soon after. He and Haley sit beside each other, praying for a positive outcome. Though he doesn't seem overly concerned. He's even brought a paperback book with him to help while away the time. He assures Haley that her mom will be fine. But of course, that's not a promise he can make. 
Not long after, a grim-faced doctor pushes through the swing door. He approaches the waiting duo. His voice is tinged with sympathy. As he tells them the doctors have worked hard, but sadly, they cannot save Sue Snow. She's declared brain dead later that morning. Just before lunchtime, the decision is made to turn off Sue's life support machine. At that moment, Haley's world turns upside down. With no obvious cause of death, an autopsy is ordered. As the pathologist makes the first incision with her scalpel, a distinctive smell wafts from the cut. Her brow wrinkles as she tries to understand what is happening. The smell of almonds. The pathologist turns to her assistant, eyes wide, and utters three fateful words. I smell cyanide. After further tests, the ruling is undeniable. Sue Snow has been poisoned. The supposed natural death of Sue Snow becomes a chilling murder case. The hunt for the killer will start small, but will soon balloon in size. A pharmaceutical company will lose millions of dollars. The state of Washington will be plunged into panic at the prospect of a killer walking among them. The FBI will get involved. But will one of the biggest manhunts the state has ever seen help unmask the killer? Or will they claim more victims before their reign of terror is over? My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're in Auburn, Washington, following local police officer Mike Dunbar and FBI Special Agent Jack Cusack. The poisoning of Sioux Snow is a shocking news story that spreads across the country like wildfire. How did a woman in the state of Washington come to ingest deadly cyanide? Is it simply a manufacturing mishap, a tragic mistake, or is something altogether more sinister the work of a serial poisoner? From Noiser, this is bad medicine, and this is detectives don't sleep. Auburn detective Mike Dunbar is assigned to the case. It's a couple of days after Sue's untimely passing when Dunbar knocks on the door of the Snow household. When the door opens, Dunbar gives his condolences to Paul, who accepts them with a brief nod of the head. Dunbar pulls a piece of paper from his pocket and hands the search warrant to the grieving husband. Inside, the detectives get down to business. He begins by sweeping the house for anything that might hold the key to uncovering how Sue was poisoned. He enters the bathroom, where Sue took some of her last breaths, and begins searching. In a medicine cabinet above the sink, nestled amongst toothpaste tubes and deodorants, he finds several pill bottles. 
he carefully places each container in a separate evidence bag before moving into other rooms. In the yard, he removes empty packs of vitamins from the trash. In the dimly lit garage, he casts a suspicious eye over bottles of weed killer and insecticides before bagging them up too. It's surprising just how many household items could be used to conceal deadly poison. By the time he returns to his vehicle, he has a large selection of bottles, tubs, and tubes. When he's finished, Dunbar asks Paul about Sue. He talks about his recently deceased wife in a detached, unemotional way. Paul tells Dunbar that Sue suffered from regular headaches for years. To counteract oncoming migraines, she often took painkillers. Her favorite brand was Excedrin. Paul suggests that maybe someone tampered with those. Dunbar searches through the evidence bags and notes that there's an extra large tub of Excedrin in there. It looks as if they only recently had been opened, as there seems to be only five or six tablets missing. And then, a thought strikes him. If Sue was killed by poisoned tablets, the M.O. is eerily similar to an unsolved case in Chicago from a few years back. You may remember, it was in the fall of 1982, seven people in the Chicago area died after consuming extra-strength Tylenol capsules that had been laced with potassium cyanide. The victims, ranging from 12 to 35, died suddenly and tragically, sparking widespread fear and panic. The tampering with commonly used over-the-counter medication led to a crisis of confidence in the pharmaceutical industry and raised concerns about the safety of consumer products in general. The poisonings prompted a massive recall of Tylenol products by the manufacturer. The company worked closely with the government and law enforcement to investigate the source of the tampering and to prevent future loss of life. Although the perpetrator was never caught, it's widely believed that the tampering occurred after the products had reached store shelves. A man named James Lewis was arrested after he sent letters to manufacturers claiming that he was behind the killings. He demanded $1 million from the pharmaceutical company. Otherwise, he would continue his reign of terror. However, after a further police investigation, there was no credible evidence found against him. Though he did serve 13 years in prison for extortion, the investigation of the case went cold and the killer was never brought to justice. Could it be that Sue Snow's killer is a copycat? Or could the actual killer from 1982 have moved across the country eager to inject fear and panic into the public's consciousness once more? Now, because the case falls under the banner of Food and Drug Administration, the investigation is handed over to the FBI. Special Agent Jack Cusack takes the lead. His first job is to get an analysis done on the medicines that were taken from the snow house. And thankfully, it doesn't take long for the results to come back. And when they do, they're conclusive. 
some of the tablets in the Excedrin box have been tampered with. It seems someone switched some of the medicine inside the capsules with cyanide. Cusack is eager to find out more about Sue's husband, Paul. He finds it very suspicious that Paul suggested that his wife's death might have had something to do with the Excedrin. He sends Dunbar back to the Snow household to do a little digging. Meanwhile, Cusack's going to go straight to the pharmaceutical company who makes the pills. It's unthinkable that someone in their position would intentionally poison their own products, right? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground-up bones and oyster shells. Double-glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Dunbar delves into the Snow's marriage. On the face of it, they were a happy couple. Sue was a highly respected bank manager in town, and Paul was a long-haul truck driver. They each had children from previous marriages, but everyone got along just fine. Family and friends painted them as a loving, close-knit family. However, Dunbar's been a detective for a long time. And he knows every family has skeletons in their closet. And he intends to find them. In the family living room, he pushes Paul for details about their marriage. Oh, sure, they might have been happy. But every couple argues, after all. So what was their last blow-up about? Paul looks around the room as if he's searching for an escape. And when he finally answers... Unease laces his voice. He tells Dunbar that they hadn't raised their voices to each other in a long time. Almost reluctantly, he confides that the last time was when Paul admitted to his wife that he'd had an affair when he was out on the West Coast on a job. Though they'd managed to patch things up pretty quickly, he sensed that Sue wasn't quite as over it as she had projected. Now, the idea that Paul murdered his wife to silence her grumbling about his infidelity seems a little far-fetched. Surely, the scenario would make more sense if Sue had been the aggressor, unless Paul wanted to continue his affair, 
which would be easier with his wife out of the picture. <laughs> Stranger things have happened. In order to corroborate his story, Dunbar invites Paul to the station to take part in a polygraph test. To the detective's surprise, Paul declines. He doesn't want to talk about Sue anymore. He claims that answering questions about her death is just too upsetting, and he just wants to be left alone. And Dunbar levels with him. At that moment, Paul is their only suspect. It's not a good look to refuse the lie detector test, especially with the FBI lurking in the shadows. Now, to some, it may seem like an admission of guilt. The news seems to hit home. Eventually, Paul relents and agrees to the test. In an anonymous room in the police station, the detective hooks Paul up to a polygraph machine and throws questions at him. Questions about his marriage, his whereabouts on the morning of her death, and about his wandering eye. Dunbar waits with bated breath as the analysis checks the results. To the detective's surprise, it's revealed that Paul has been telling the truth. It seems that their only suspect is clean. Dunbar stalks to his office and throws himself into his chair. He can't help but hope that Agent Cusack is having more luck with investigating the pharmaceutical company. It's June 16th, 1986. Special Agent Cusack sits in his makeshift office in the Auburn Police Station. The air is thick with tension. There are reports strewn all over his desk including Sue's autopsy report, which he's been going through with a fine-tooth comb. But it's not that one that he's interested in right now. It's the FDA report that has his full attention. According to what's on the page, the company who manufactured the Excedrin capsules are innocent of any wrongdoing. In the past few days, 750,000 packets of Excedrin have been pulled from supermarket shelves and subjected to rigorous testing. The scientists in charge of the test conclude that the tablets that killed Sue Snow were tampered with after leaving the factory. There were only two more bottles that had been tampered with in the whole of the state, and both were found in the same Auburn store where Sue had bought the poisoned batch. The revelation sends shivers down Cusack's spine. It seems that there's someone out there someone lurking in the shadows of the town with a supply of cyanide, willing to do harm to innocent civilians. Eager to get a better picture of who Sue Snow was, Cusack asks Dunbar to get down to the bank where Sue worked and interview her colleagues. Puget Sound National Bank is a small, unassuming building in the north of town. Dunbar pulls his cruiser into the parking lot and enters the bank. It's a hive of activity. Despite the early hour, there's already a line of people waiting to be served by tellers. Ignoring the line, Dunbar asks to speak to the manager. After a short wait, they enter an office where the manager's more than happy to answer any questions about Sue. Dunbar finds out that Sue was well-liked by the people she worked with. 
though she had ruffled a few feathers in the community. You see, she'd reported a couple of guys who she suspected of financial crimes. She'd received correspondence from one of them, calling her some pretty nasty names. Dunbar also finds out that she had a tendency to be flirtatious with some of the high-rolling customers. According to one of her colleagues, Paul didn't like it. He was the jealous type and treated her with undisguised contempt on the days he knew she had meetings with one of the rich clients. Dunbar remained suspicious of Paul. I mean, sure, he may have passed the polygraph test. Those things aren't always reliable. He resolves to turn his attention back to the husband, maybe question him again about the more rocky parts of their relationship. But before he can, there's a worrying development in the case. The news of the tampered bottles hits the headlines, and an overwhelming wave of panic grips the public. Whispers begin to circulate about the 1982 Tylenol killings, and many fear a copycat. Confidence in the pharmaceutical company plummets, and the business loses millions of dollars in stock. In a desperate bid to regain some control, they offer a $100,000 reward to help apprehend the killer. And to make matters worse, another Auburn native approaches the FBI believing that her husband has suffered the same fate as Sue. Her name is Stella Nickel. Her world shattered around her a week earlier when her husband, Bruce, died suddenly. The death report states that he died from emphysema, a lung disease. But she's concerned that the symptoms he died from sound a lot like those Sue experienced in her final moments. She's terrified that someone killed her husband and demands further examination of his body. The problem there is that Bruce has already been buried. Yet, there is a glimmer of hope. You see, Bruce decided to donate his eyeballs to scientific research. As part of the procedure, a vial of his blood has been locked away in a lab. Cusack asks the scientist to analyze the blood and faces an anxious wait to find out if the death of Sue Snow is an anomaly or part of a grander killing spree. The agonizing wait doesn't last long. When his phone rings, he snatches it up and holds it against his ear. He listens carefully as the scientist explains the results of the blood analysis. The results are conclusive. Bruce Nickel also died from cyanide poisoning. He asks the scientist to do more complex investigation on the poisoned Excedrin capsules that killed Sue Snow. He needs answers. Where did the cyanide come from? How did the killer possibly get their hands on it? He knows it's almost pointless to ask. Cyanide's already available for jobs like pest control. You can buy it in pretty much every hardware store in the country. Still, he has to do something. Contemplating his next move, Cusack decides to send a cop over to Stella's place 
to find out more about the death of her husband. The enormity of the task surrounds him like a thick blanket of fog. Just how many more people will die before the killer is brought to justice? Early the next morning, a beat cop travels the winding lanes of Lake Moneysmith Road. The sun is just rising above the horizon, streaking the sky with golden hues. A high-pitched bird song is the only other noise aside from the rumbling of the car's wheels on the rutted blacktop. Eventually, the cop pulls off the road and parks in front of a single wide trailer. Stella Nickel is standing out front, waiting for him. Her long black hair hangs over her narrow shoulders and her skin is pale. She leads the cop into her trailer and sinks into an armchair. The cop has a look around before joining her. The living space has a small TV and a couple of chairs. A clock ticks loudly on the wall. There's a tank with some colorful tropical fish darting this way and that under the cop's watchful gaze. Finally, he sinks into the seat opposite Stella and tells her he's sorry for her loss. This breaks the ice, and Stella launches into a story of a happy marriage. Bruce was the love of her life. She tells him that he was healthy, that she doubted the initial ruling of his death from the moment it was presented to her. In fact, she had telephoned the coroner's office a number of times to press her point. They were unwilling to listen. Before the cop leaves, Stella tells him that Bruce was suffering with headaches recently and hands him two bottles of Excedrin. She says she bought them in different stores a couple weeks apart. She doesn't know which of them contained the poison capsules that killed her husband. He promises to keep her updated on the investigation and bids the grieving widow goodbye. Now, a little later, on the same day, a lab technician in Washington, D.C. is hunched over his desk. Using a pair of tweezers, he carefully separates one of the poisoned Excedrin capsules found in Sue Snow's house. He flicks the switch on the desk lamp and moves the red capsule underneath the trusty microscope. As expected, the powder is white and fine like every other sample of cyanide he's ever seen. But there's something else inside the capsule that's strange. He magnifies the lens further and gets a good look at the anomalies. Hidden within the powder are little green specks, almost invisible to the naked eye. He dutifully picks the emerald flecks out and does some chemical analysis on them. Turns out, that they belong to an algicide tablet called Algae Destroyer, the type used to kill organisms that can blight a pond or a fish tank. The technician phones Cusack in Auburn and delivers the results. He's as dumbfounded as the technician, but vows to get to the bottom of it. The town where Sue Snow died has plenty of pet shops. He's sure he'll find the answers he needs in one of them. It's mid-afternoon in August 1986 when Special Agent Cusack pulls his car into the lot of a strip mall. 
The day's been a bust so far. Every pet shop he's been in carry a range of algicides, including algae destroyer. No one's able to tell the FBI agent anything he doesn't already know. Cusack walks into the store with little hope that he'll learn anything new. His nostrils are immediately assaulted by the stench of sawdust and animal droppings. Birds squawk ceaselessly, and rodents scurry about in cages, their eyes squinting against the harsh daylight that streams in through the enormous front window. Cusack stalks through the aisles, making a beeline for the aquarium section at the back of the store. He taps an employee on the shoulder and asks about algae destroyer. Tom Noonan is the employee in question. According to him, algicides usually come in liquid form. But a while ago, a customer entered the store and asked if they stocked tablets. He told the customer that they didn't, but that they could order some. The customer took him up on his offer and ordered a surprisingly large batch. Noonan told the customer that in order to maximize the tablet's effectiveness, it was best to crush them up before putting them in the tank. And that could explain the little green fragments in the Excedrin capsules. Maybe the customer used the same bowl to crush the algicide tablets and tamper with the capsules, forgetting to wash it in between the two tasks. It's a solid connection that could link the killer and Sue Snow. Cusack asks if Noonan could identify the customer if he saw them again, and pulls out a series of photographs. Noonan flips through the pages, focusing on the faces on each one for a little while before moving on. It's when he stops on one page in particular that Cusack notices his eyes widen a little. Noonan hands the page to Cusack and claims that she is the customer who ordered the algae destroyer tablets. A breath escapes Cusack's lips. You see, the customer who ordered the algicide is none other than Stella Nickel. Surely, Cusack reasons as he drives back to the station, this has to be some sort of coincidence. Stella Nickel can't be behind Sue's death. She can't. If she was, why would she come forward to the police about her own husband's poisoning? I mean, surely, she would have done everything in her power to keep the spotlight away from her. But Cusack's seen everything there is to be seen during his time in law enforcement. He knows people do odd things for reasons known only to themselves. Stella Nickel needs to be investigated further, but he doesn't want to go in with guns blazing. As he drives, he racks his brain, and by the time he comes to a stop in front of the police station, he's come up with a pretty good plan. Inside, he scoops up the telephone and calls Stella's neighbor, a woman called Sandra Scott. He asks her if she'd be interested in doing a little undercover work. The next morning, Sandra walks towards Stella's trailer. The two women occasionally share a morning coffee together, so this isn't such an unusual event. However, today feels different. Sandra's hands are shaking, 
and her knees feel a little wobbly, too. When she reaches the door, she takes a moment to compose herself before knocking. Stella opens the door with a smile plastered on her face. She invites her neighbor in and offers her a drink. Usually, Sandra has her coffee with a little cream. Today, she just takes it black. Now they sit in the living room area and engage in casual chit-chat, though Sandra's only half listening. The FBI wants her to ask Stella about the algae product she uses to clean her tanks. But it's hardly the easiest topic to slip into conversation. Sandra waits for her moment and eventually manages to ask about the best way to keep her tank clean. Stella regards her with an odd expression and doesn't comment. After a tense moment, Stella moves the conversation in a different direction. She wants to talk about Bruce. Sandra's heard a lot about her neighbor's husband before, but figures she might let something slip that the FBI could use a little way down the line. So she lets Stella talk. Stella and Bruce met at a party in the town. They both liked to drink and dance. However, as time went on, Stella grew tired of her husband's indulgences. She ordered him to stop drinking and helped him through the process of getting sober. But it wasn't the life she'd imagined. Now sober, all Bruce wanted to do was odd jobs around their home and ride his motorcycle while she wanted to go to the clubs. The marriage grew stale and Bruce admitted to Stella that it felt like their marriage might be over not long before he died. If Stella's behind the murder of her husband, could this be the motive? I mean, did she want to marry someone else? Someone who she could take dancing and drinking in the town's bars? But the puzzle remains. If she did kill her husband, why would she go on to kill Sue Snow? A woman she'd apparently no connection to. Special Agent Cusack decides to focus all his energy in this direction. It's late August, and he's in his office. He's hunched over Bruce Nichols' life insurance policy, which he's rereading, trying to make sense of it. According to the papers in front of him, if Bruce Nichols died of natural causes, Stella would be owed $71,000. However, in the event of an accidental death, the potential windfall could increase by over $100,000. Cusack reasons that this is why she'd been putting pressure on the coroner in an attempt to sway his judgment and coerce him into doing another autopsy. She wants more money. Cusack calls some other detectives in, and they review the case. A working theory is quickly formed. They believe that Stella thought that Bruce's death would be declared accidental in the first place, allowing her to scoop the maximum payout from the insurance company without further question. When the death was ruled as natural, her carefully laid plans unraveled. But she wasn't ready to give up. After petitioning the coroner to change his verdict and failing, she needed another way to convince him. Her method? Somehow, she tampered with Sue Snow's pills 
and replaced the powder inside with cyanide. Since there was no way she could have entered Sue's home, the pills must have been tampered with after leaving the pharmaceutical company's plant, but before Sue bought them. That leaves only one scenario. Stella bought the capsules, took them home, filled them with cyanide, and returned them to the store shelf. Then all she had to do was wait for some poor, unsuspecting person to buy the pack and take a tablet. If that's true, Sue's death was a random, tragic loss of life. Nothing more than a puzzle piece in Stella Nichols' deadly plan. But how can Cusack prove it? Tired of tiptoeing around her, he decides he's got enough evidence to question Stella formally. It's time to get her hooked up to a polygraph machine. However, Stella Nichol is reluctant to take the test. She claims that being questioned will dredge up difficult memories of a time she's trying hard to forget. She also claims that the test is pointless. Her lawyer told her that they're unreliable. So what's the point of taking it? Well, it turns out there's a very valid reason, as Stella soon finds out. You see, Stella can't get her hands on a single dime of the insurance payout while she's under suspicion. But if she passes the polygraph test, the money is hers. So, after months of trying to get her to take the test, Cusack receives a phone call. It's Stella, and she's ready to prove her innocence. It's December 15th. 1986. Stella walks halfway down the hallway of the FBI offices in Seattle, alongside Cusack. She's surprisingly chatty and friendly, and assures him that she'll pass with flying colors. However, her mood turns as they enter the examining room. It's as basic as it comes. The walls are bare and are painted white. Only a little sunshine manages to squeeze between the blinds that cover the windows. The carpet is thin and patchy in places. The whole room could do with some decoration. Stella barely notices any of this. Her attention is on the padded chair in the center of the room. On the desk beside it is the polygraph machine. A tangle of wires spill out of the back of it. The needles sit poised above the paper ready to jump into life and decide whether Stella is telling the truth. It's an intimidating piece of technology. Stella sits, her breathing already speeding up. She's clearly nervous. Cusack attaches the required equipment to Stella's body and sits down opposite her. He makes a show of adjusting the dials on the machine before starting it up. It comes to life with a faint hum he asks her some simple questions to get a read of her vitals. The needles remain steady, deviating only slightly from their continuous straight line. Then, he moves on to the case at hand. He asks her about cyanide and why she killed her husband. He asks about Sue Snow and why both bottles of pills that Stella handed over to the cops contain poisonous capsules. 
While Stella talks, he watches the needles dance on the paper, creating little peaks and troughs. He doesn't need an expert to tell him that Stella Nickel is lying to him. When he gives her the results, her smile falters and then falls off her face entirely. She tries to tell him that the test is wrong, but Cusack has heard it all before. He cuts her off and makes it clear that she is in deep, deep trouble. But before he can go any further, she demands to see her attorney. Cusack lists the evidence against Stella, which the attorney dismisses. According to him, all the FBI has is hearsay and conjecture, safe in the knowledge that the polygraph cannot be used in court. The attorney ushers Stella from the room. Jack sits back in his chair. He was convinced of her guilt before she entered the room. Now, he's never been more sure of anything in his life. But he doesn't have the evidence he needs to send her down for murder. The case looks like it's drifting towards one of those that'll remain unsolved. So now it's just a couple days after Stella's failed polygraph. Cusack gets a call from the FBI's forensic lab. One of the techs there has been painstakingly examining documentation related to the nickel case, and he spotted something that could crack the investigation wide open. He's convinced that the signature on Bruce's insurance policy has been forged. He talks Cusack through his findings. He spent countless hours comparing handwriting samples under a microscope. And he's confident that the signature's been forged by Stella. It's interesting and could play a part later on, but still not enough to convict her. The most damning piece of evidence comes from Stella's daughter, Cynthia. It's January, 1987. Cynthia Hamilton is sitting in a room with Special Agent Cusack. Her dark hair spills across her forehead and her mouth is set in a determined line. Cusack already knows that the mother-daughter relationship is fractured and that Stella Nickel was convicted of child abuse in 1969. Things had never been the same. Now, Cynthia takes a breath and begins her story. She claims that Stella had discussed with her in the past how she would kill Bruce. She proposed hiring a hitman or messing with the wheels of his car so that he would crash on a highway. And once, she'd even tried poisoning him with foxglove that she found in the garden. But all it did was make him sluggish and nauseous for a couple of days. And he made a full recovery afterwards. So, when Cynthia heard about her stepfather's death, she knew her mother was behind it. Cusack pushes her for any hard evidence she may have, but he's left frustrated. She doesn't have any, and all Cusack has is more hearsay. But then, Cynthia remembers something that might help. The last time she visited her mom's home, she noticed some library books lying around the place. At the time, she thought it was odd, but quickly forgot about them. 
Now she realizes just how important they could be. Armed with the information, Cusack rushes up to the library and requests Stella's borrowing history. When he's handed her card, he realizes that they've struck a gold mine. In the months leading up to Bruce's death, Stella had borrowed books related to poisons. Cusack orders that the books are sent to the FBI lab and pronto. And it doesn't take long before the techs find evidence that will ultimately lead to Stella's arrest. A grand total of 104 of Stella's fingerprints are found within the pages of the books that she borrowed. Most of them on pages related to cyanide. It's the Hail Mary Cusack needed and is more than enough to start building a case against her. On December 8, 1987, Stella Nichol is finally arrested. Her trial begins a few months later, in April 1988. Though she maintains her innocence, no one's buying it, especially the judge, who quickly finds her guilty of murder. And what's more, she becomes the first person in U.S. history to be charged with product tampering and is sentenced to over 200 years in prison. In the years that follow, Stella sticks resolutely to her innocence. She claims her daughter lied to the cops in order to access some of the reward money. Her attorney enters an appeal that alleges that jury tampering had played a part in Stella's conviction. That appeal is swiftly rejected. The murder of Bruce Nichol was the perfect crime. Stella would have gotten away with it scot-free. However, her greed and lust for money drove her to kill again. The cold-blooded murder of Sue Snow was to be her ultimate undoing. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. It's 2014 and we're in Mexico. 20-year-old Karen Rodriguez is on her way to meet some friends when she's kidnapped by one of the most ruthless cartels in the country. The abductors send a ransom demand to her terrified family, which they pay straight away. However, Karen has never returned. Miriam Rodriguez, Karen's mother, might not have a police badge or a private eye license. But when the police refuse to help, she takes the law into her own hands. Armed with a gun, an array of disguises, and an unquenchable thirst to see justice done, Miriam will come up against some of the most ruthless men in the country. Just how far will she be willing to fight in the search for her daughter? Join us next time on Detectives Don't Sleep for the story of Mother Justice.